0: When a user takes a ride on Uber, the app on the user's phone is communicating with Uber's backend infrastructure, which is writing to a database that maintains the state of that rider's activity. This database is known as a transactional database, or OLTP for online transaction processing. Every active user and driver and Uber Eats restaurant is writing data to the transactional data store. As you are taking rides throughout the day, your phone is interacting with that transactional data store. Periodically, that data is copied from the transactional data system to a different data storage system, where that data can be queried for large-scale data analysis. For example, if a data scientist at Uber wants to get the average amount of miles that a given user rode in February, that data scientist would issue a query to the analytical data cluster. Uber uses the Hadoop Distributed File System, or HDFS, to store analytical data. On this file system, Uber has a version history of all the company's useful historical data. Trip history, rider activity, driver activity, every data point that you would want as a data scientist or a machine learning researcher. All of this data is in the online analytic processing database. It's also in the transactional system, but... In the transactional system, it's not in the format that is easy to query for large-scale data processing. This file format is known as Parquet. It's a columnar data format that we've done a couple previous shows on. Data scientists and machine learning engineers and real-time application developers all depend on the massive quantities of data that are stored in these Parquet files on Uber's HDFS cluster. To simplify the access of that data in the HDFS cluster by many different clients, Uber uses Presto, an analytical query engine originally built at Facebook. Presto translates SQL queries into whatever query language is necessary to access the underlying storage medium, whether that storage medium is an Elasticsearch cluster, or a set of Parquet files on HDFS, or a relational database, Presto is useful because it simplifies the relationship between data engineers and the application developers who are building on top of that data engineering infrastructure. So if you're a machine learning researcher, all you need to speak is SQL. You just write SQL queries against Presto, and Presto's query planning engine is able to gather that data, translate the SQL query into whatever domain-specific query, for example, querying against Parquet files, or querying against Elasticsearch, and deliver you the result that some sort of SQL database would. So Presto is super useful, and that's why it's being used at Netflix and Uber and Facebook and a variety of other companies. In today's show, Zheng Xiao joins to give an end-to-end description of Uber's data infrastructure. Zheng Xiao is an engineer at Uber, and he explains the full pipeline from the ingest point of the OLTP database To the OLAP data storage system on HDFS, to the wide range of data systems and applications that run on top of that OLAP data. This was a really good show. I enjoyed getting the end to end description, and thanks to Zheng Xiao for giving such a good lesson in data engineering infrastructure. Jingxiao Lo is a engineer at Uber. Jingxiao, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Nice to meet you. It's great to have you here. Uber has a lot of applications, and some of those applications require large-scale data processing. For sure. And then there's all these applications that use that large-scale processing. They use the models that are built on top of it, or you have data scientists that are doing ad hoc queries, What are the requirements for the analytics infrastructure at Uber?
1: Yeah, very good question. Actually, we have uh, many requirements. And the most important one, I think, is uh, scalability, reliability, and performance. The number one thing is scalability. I mean, for Uber, we have so many internal either reports or uh, all kind of tools need to run analytics queries. And the number of queries is huge. And also the data that each of these queries are touching is also huge. So we need to scale both our storage, also the compute stack and the whole data stack. That is the number one thing. Also for performance, also we have a very high requirement, uh, meaning that uh, some of the queries we need almost real-time, some of them we need at least uh, within a, a few seconds. So the performance, and also we need to be reliable at almost uh, 24-7, so all of throw three your pretty pocket.
0: You've got all this user data that gets generated. For example, a user requests a car and then takes a ride in that car. And when that data is getting created, this is typically called transactional data. You have an OLTP database, the online transaction processing database. These things that are transactions that affect the business applications of the day-to-day business of Uber. And then you have to transform the data in the transactional database to analytical database systems. This is obviously a very abstract description. You have a lot of systems that underlie both the transactional infrastructure and the analytical infrastructure. But when we think about the requirements for the transactional stack versus the analytical stack, so the analytical stack I think of as it's more important to access in a columnar fashion because, for example, you need to aggregate all of the tips for example that users gave during a certain time horizon of rides that were given you want to aggregate and you want to see how much people are tipping so you only want that row but for the user that's just requesting a car and then taking the ride and then maybe they cancel the ride in the middle of it or maybe they make a star rating the different Rows all need to be accessible. So, you want a column, sorry, you want a row based uh, transactional fashion. I think this is one of the important things to note about transactional databases versus analytical databases. Tell me about the transactional requirements versus the analytical requirements of the data infrastructure at Uber.
1: Sure. Oh, Jack, seems you know a lot about Uber, <laughs> about the internal things. Actually, we have uh, two stacks, one for the traditional one, or we call it the online one. And another one is analytical database, or analytical, the, the big data site. So these are two stacks, and they have different requirements as well. I mean, the traditional one is more, the reliability is more important, and it's serving online data, so the uh, performance we have uh, really real-time happens. But for the analytical side, we have different requirements. I mean, sometimes we do not need real-time analytics, and, uh, but the scale is usually bigger. But how do we do the transformation? Usually, you may heard of Uber built its own uh, transactional online database called SchemaList, which is serving the online traffic, and it's uh, scale pretty good, and also it's uh, very reliable. But the problem is all the data in SchemaList doesn't have a schema. And as one other problem you already said is uh, the data stored in rows, all the data is writing is uh, in row format, not in the column format. So these are the two things that we want to transform. So we have our own build uh, pipeline, we call it commander, and recently we do a thing called core, which replaces the uh, old pipeline. So we try to number one, is we need to get a type schema for this data. Number two is we need to transform from a row format into a column format for the analytical side to have a better performance. Yeah, that is the thing uh, we are doing. And now I think we have a decent latency, I mean, for the ingestion transformation. So usually most of the data can arrive within 30 minutes. But some of them we can, I mean, uh, if we are building supermodels or model tables, it could be last longer.
0: So data gets written quickly to the transactional database, and then there might be a 30-minute latency getting the transactional data into the analytical database.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Since we need to do the transformation uh, for number one, we need to add the types, the schemas to the data. Number two is we need to transform between a row format into a columnar format.
0: We'll go through some of the parts of that transformational infrastructure, and we'll eventually dive down into the discussion of presto and parquet and how that fits in i want to give people a better framing for your infrastructure so talking about the transactional database at first so you said you use schemaless but you also use you have memsql you have mysql you have postgres why do you have this wide variety of relational databases
1: uh so the uh, a company at Uber scale, uh, we have so many teams and a big number of teams need this uh, data storage. And uh, so if they just need a small data storage for some data, then they may just uh, launch a MySQL or PostgreSQL instance. The MySQL part, is actually, they are in the big data side. So uh, we are buying MySQL license for MySQL provides us a really fast, very good performance. And it used to work pretty well at a smaller scale. And now we see uh, more and more challenges to MemSQL. So now there is a team, the streaming side, they are developing our own uh, streaming database, really fast, real time database, as well as we have other solutions to try to offload a few of the traffic from MemSQL.
0: What about Kafka? What is the role that Kafka plays in your, if we're just talking about the ingestion side of things?
1: Yeah, Kafka is a very important role. I mean, all the data initially are uh, landing in schema list and we're pulling them first into Kafka. And then so it's, uh, everything is Kafka events. And then we're pulling the events out of Kafka and doing the, as I said, uh, row format to columnar format transformation and also the uh, type inference, all these things. So data flows first into schema list, then dumping into together with some other things. Uh, some other events are logged directly into Kafka. And then both schema leads and Kafka data are dumping and transform. Uh, doing the transform- transformation and type inference and finally dumping into HDFS.
0: So you mentioned HDFS. Can you talk a little bit more about how data makes its way from the ingested and transactional point in the data infrastructure into HDFS?
1: So... There are a few data sources within the company. I mean, the uh, online data is schema list and log events mostly in Kafka and some other things that also reside in Kafka. And then there's uh, so many relational MySQL or PostgreSQL instances. All this data we try to build, uh, we call the a Hadoop data lake, which means we try to capture all the data within the company and store them in HDFS. So we are doing um, the Hoover pipelines. We are pulling from list, infer the type, doing the transformation. Kafka side, the similar thing, uh, infer the type and uh, doing the transformation. And also we are copying directly from MySQL or Postgres, directly dumping the data into Hadoop. So finally, everything, all the data are captured in HDFS. And then at the same time, since we infer the type, so we are also registering tables, the metadata information in the higher Metastar. So at this time, the HDFS is holding all the files, and the Hive Metastore holding all the metadata. And then the data is ready to be queried by Hive and Presto.
0: I see. So the Hive Metastore. So Hive is a querying engine on top of Hadoop, and you need a Metastore because the data in HDFS is not necessarily... You can't access the schema by HDFS?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, the HDFS has just storing uh, everything in the files. Well, how about the types and the table to column mapping? How many columns the table has and also the column types? And also whether the table is partitioned, where is the location? All these things are in the metastore. So the metastore is another very important component. So everyone is t- uh, talking to the metastore.
0: Right. So my understanding of Hive is that Hive is also, it can be used to query directly. You can query Hadoop directly by querying Hive. But I guess you could also just use it as a store of the metadata around the, those files that are in HDFS.
1: Yes, yes. Hive is really very rich functionality. I mean, Hive can be used for many things. And mostly, the metastore you just mentioned is uh, is for metadata storage, which is actually shared by Hive, Presto, and Spark. Everyone can use a metastore. But Hive itself, we can use it. User can either shoot query directly on Hive, otherwise it's kind of slower, or they can use Hive for ETL jobs and so many other things as well.
0: I think it's worth adding a comment here about schema. So data schema. I did a show about schemaless a while ago, I think. we t- We touched on it at least. But when I think about situations where you don't know the schema of your data, I can imagine this being important, for example, if you have all these different teams that are working in different geo locations. For example, if if you've got an Uber team that's working in Singapore, maybe they are maintaining different metadata about rides. Maybe they have some Singapore-specific Uber application, like, I don't know, rent a motor scooter or something like that, that you wouldn't have in San Francisco. And so if you think about the abstraction of a ride you can't necessarily impose a schema on that across the entire company, because it depends what geolocation you're talking about, what kind of vehicle you're talking about. And so if you want to just query for rides, you don't necessarily want to be assuming a certain schema. So I just make that one comment as an example of a a trade off between maintaining a schema and not maintaining a schema. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about the trade offs of maintaining schema over data.
1: Sure, yeah. I think this is a very good point, and also the one of the challenges in uh, Uber data. As you said, if we are very strict for the schema, then the, since we have so many branches operating in so many cities, so many continents, it's difficult to scale. I mean, uh, whenever uh, someone operations in uh, Singapore, they log something, but maybe the column doesn't exist or something, so it's challenging. Another thing is if we do not have no schema at all, that is how schema is doing that. And that is difficult for the big data side to run analytics, since we do not know the type of the data. That is uh, challenging. So the way is, our current solution is, uh, number one, we try to make the schema flexible to all the operations or anyone who log data. So we are using a lot of the complex da- uh, data types. For example, the struct and the race. So the struct, we have uh, inside struct. Is, I mean, in Uber, it is common you have uh, 20 fields inside the struct. And inside that struct, you have another struct nasty. And then that has another 100 field. And inside that 100 fields, you have arrays, maps, and struct inside. And then, so the struct is just a common concept for one column, but inside the struct, different teams and different geolocations they may have different number of fields inside that struct. So that is a very flexible schema management and, but for our analytics side, our first challenge is we need to support all these schema evolutions. I mean, some of the data, although the metadata saying it has ten fields, but actually the data only have eight. And some of them, although the metadata saying it has eight, but the data has maybe twenty. So we need to support the data to be queryable as much as possible. So we try to infer all the types during the data ingestion, and once the data injected in the search uh, in the query engine. Both high and presto, we are supporting the very complex schema evolution. I mean, the nesting inside nesting, a different type, uh, different number of fields inside structs, a huge level of nesting inside that. And the fields are added or removed very frequently. Yeah, but now our uh, SQL engine can support that.
0: I imagine developing this data infrastructure must have required an immense amount of planning.
1: <laughs> yes. This is, I think, as far as I know, the, the data analytics part started in uh, 2015 when the uh, Uber business really scales. And now we see so many challenges. We were using some enterprise, buying uh, expensive enterprise licenses. And then, then we decided to build our own. And it costs uh, uh, almost one year to make it mature and uh, have a decent performance. And then everyone uh, now so everyone is using that.
0: Yeah, and I talked to Matt Ranny. I talked to Danny Wan, I talked to some other people in Uber Infrastructure, and it's just, I mean, it was moving, I mean, it's still moving very fast, but at this point, the team has had some time to catch up in terms of infrastructure. It sounded like there was a period of time where even thinking about a consistent translation of analytical data to OLAP data it sounded like imposing that across an entire company would have been almost impossible in
1: the early days when you're just <laughs> scaling, <It's>, it, <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's the case. I mean, um, I think starting from two years ago, we started seeing, oh, there's so many technical debts, And then there's uh, also there's, uh, one problem, we have many proposed solutions. So now we are thinking more about consolidation, also, whether we just uh, provide one best solution instead of uh, so many techniques. Yeah, that is also the, one of the most important theme of the company. Incredible. By the way, do you use HDFS, right? Not S3? Mostly, I mean, the whole Hadoop Data Lake is on HDFS. But within the company, I mean, the different teams, they may use S3 for temporary storage or some other purposes. So there are still some S3 usage. Right. Was the
0: choice of HDFS instead of S3, was that a cost decision? Or what was the... Because I I think, doesn't Netflix use S3 for their data lake?
1: Yes. Netflix is totally, purely on S3. Yeah. The reason we choose HDFS, I mean, we are still discussing and uh, running benchmarks. Now we are evaluating um, more for the cloud side. So maybe in the future, we will be a mixed architecture. But now the data side is uh, still mostly on HDFS. The reason is, um, I don't think there's a technical or the economical reason, but just uh, we start with HDFS, and then we grow so fast that we have <laughs> so, so many data there, and it's really challenging to migrate the whole pipeline to another storage. That's really challenging. Mm. So we even do not have time to catch up on that side.
0: Okay. I think we kind of glossed over this, but so you, you have data that is written to the transactional side, and at some point it gets copied over to the analytics side. How does that batching work?
1: Yeah, that is, uh, we do. Uh, we are doing actually a timestamp based for that. I mean, the transactional data, uh, yeah, number one is, uh, while we are pulling the data from the transactional side, we do not want to affect the uh, online uh, performance. That is a critical requirement. So we are mostly pulling from the schema list logs. So we, we do not touch the online data directly. So we are pulling from logs. Then we from the logs, we can... Kind of reformulate the data, and then we do the transformation, something like that. And then when we are transforming that, we actually keep different version of each of the file. So let's say one of the value is uh, the rating of fares. If some of them is updated, we keep different version of that. So inside the uh, analytics, you can query different version of the data. Actually, that's
0: amazing. So, you, so you've got the schemaless database for the transactional data, and you don't want to hammer the read frequency of that transactional data. So instead we, you... Re- we
1: yeah, We have to call the logs, yeah.
0: So you, so you read the write-ahead log? Yes, yes. Interesting, because you can derive all the data necessary to reconstruct the transactional database itself from the write-ahead log. I can imagine that's additionally useful because you'd be able to... Well, if there's a change to the database, you're also going to be changing that data point when you rewrite that data in HDFS, right?
1: Yes. The way is we are pulling from logs. So all the changes we got that, but we are not rewriting HDFS files directly. Actually, we are keeping a number of versions for each of the files. So let's say within the last 10 hours or even longer, all your changes, we have one version of that. And we keep different versions of that. And based on your query time, or if you specifically say, I want to query the some data, let's say the 10 hours ago, we can do that. Most of the users just shoot the most recent version of the file. And then after a while, we are deprecating this old version of the file.
0: So not only do you have the current state of Uber as of 30 minutes latency in the OLAP stack, you also have mm-hmm. the entire revision history. Yes, exactly. Cool. And what is the infrastructure you're using to get that write-ahead log from the schema schemaless write-ahead log copied into HDFS?
1: Yeah, we, this is, we develop in-house and uh, a number of projects doing that. One is uh, open source called StreamU and also the another project called Commander and the Hoover which are doing the transformation and polling. And there's a, for the different version of the file, we developed our own library called Hudi, which is open source, uh, I think, last year. And for how could you keep different versions of the file and one the query hitting that, the whole integration can work pr- uh, perfect. Awesome. It, what is Streamio built with? Streamio is mostly uh, touching the schema-list logs and then getting all the logs and then uh, try to rebuild, reformulate the structure inside schema-list. That is for the polling from schemers.
0: Okay, it's just reading the raw log file and and copying yeah. that data over into HDFS.
1: Yes, a little bit more magic than that. They are also keeping a small, very small HBase, keeping the most recent version there, and uh, then uh, copy the uh, guide the data, and then uh, doing some transformation there.
0: There's so many large-scale stream processing systems, it seems like you could use Spark or Heron or something like that for copying that write-ahead log data into HDFS. Why would you choose to build your own?
1: Number one is the schema list has its own very distinct format and architecture. I mean, uh, for the other things, I don't think any any of the system can work directly with uh, schema list. Skimming is actually is um, kind of uh, you can think of that like a sharded MySQL, but actually storing JSON since it doesn't have types. So the sharded using sharded MySQL to store JSON, uh, nasty JSON things. Yeah, that's, uh, so we have to develop our own to pulling the thing and doing the research formation.
0: Yeah. Oh, I see. So really, this is about developing a specific kind of reader for the data. Yes.
1: Yes. Exactly.
0: Okay. Yeah. But with that reader, so you you, you have to read the data, and then you have to somehow port that read data into HDFS. So I guess you read the data from the write-ahead log into memory, and then does it get copied from memory into HDFS?
1: Yes, that is the... I'm not sure whether we are there yet. I mean, (laughs) ideally, we should just... Yeah, pulling from the log... And then everything in memory. Then we dump as a parquet or ORC, that the columnar format. But actually, it's more challenging than that, since the schema list really has a huge amounts of data, and data is updated frequently. So if we are doing this, we are hitting the memory thresholds again and again. So we used to at least dump once. So we pull in the logs, and then we do some transformation. We dumping sequence file on uh, HDFS, then we read from HDFS again, the sequence file, we transform that into parquet, the columnar format. But now we are improving that, trying to make the optimized way, I mean, directly dumping as columnar format.
0: Right. So for a given write-ahead log, can you parallelize Streamio and be able to, I mean, you could do this, you could get it all into memory if you parallelized it well enough, right?
1: Yeah, since it's already sharded and uh, yeah, but still I mean, since the data volume is really huge, uh, I think that's that's very challenging. Uh, we have an ongoing project trying to do that. I think we we may achieve that goal <laughs> this year.
0: <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. That's a that's a sounds like a tough problem. So anyway, let's fast forward. You've got this data that's shuttled from Streamio from your schemaless database into Parquet files, but you use Parquet files to store the data on HDFS. The schema of those Parquet files is maintained in Hive. Talk a little bit about Parquet files. Why is that the file type that you want to store the data of Uber's transactional history in?
1: Yeah. So actually one thing is we we want to have a columnar file format. So we all the analytic side, the performance will be really bad. So we have to use a, a columnar file format. And uh, the open source solution is a ORC or parquet. But number two thing for Uber, which is unique, is we have so many nasty data. It's highly nasty. I mean, it's uh, quite common in Uber. We can see that a table has a struct. Uh, the struct may be nested over 20 levels. Uh, each of them has uh, more than 100 fields inside that. So it's a highly nested, and then the, to support this highly nested data structure in a color format, then the, I mean the idea is the Google Dremel paper and the implementation for open source of Parquet. So that's the reason why we choose Parquet.
0: Nested data. Explain what it means to have a nested table, and why do you end up with a nested table?
1: Yeah. Since we talk about the metadata, it's really challenging. We cannot keep the the table schema just flat. I mean, everything is just uh, long or double or float. It's challenging since, I mean, different geolocations, different teams and different departments, they may have their kind of, they need to update the schema really frequently. So we cannot keep just a very strict schema for one table. I mean, the schema is updated very frequently. So we are choosing a a way to kind of, we provide a schema, but the schema is uh, extensible. That's the reason why we choose struct. Now we have so many structs, and uh, since inside struct, is uh, uh, if the struct has three fields, that's a struct. Uh, if the struct has 300 fields, that's still a struct. So that's kind of thing we have a schema, but uh, the nasty fields inside the struct is really complicated. So that's a kind of uh, contract between uh, the logging and the analytics side. So that's the data, data one is uh, dumping. In nature, it is nasty.
0: Right. So you could impose some schema, right? So like, for example, a ride, you want to impose the schema of a ride has a start and end time and perhaps like how much it costs. But beyond that, you know, you want to give freedom to the application developers within Uber if they're in Singapore and you have, you know, some motorbike application that doesn't exist in the United States, you want to be able to include the data about that is specific to motorbike rides in that schemaless right. so you might have a more column and then in the more column you have an additional table, and that entire table contains data that's specific to the motorbike ride.
1: Yeah, something like that. We are doing that in one table. I mean, uh, we have a few big tables, and uh, this table has a few primitive types, the long and timestamp and double float. And then yeah, the others column are more called we call message. And inside message we have so many things and these things are updated frequently. Yeah. And then under that we still have nesting. Some other things nested there.
0: <laughs> Yeah. But the nesting structure is consistent in a way that if you transform it from the schemaless format to parquet files. You can have guarantees around how that transformation is going to end up in that different park Because the parquet nested format is going to be much different than the the representation of the schemaless format.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, we have our kind of the metadata schema service, internal service called Watchtower. And then this is a contract that whenever they log something, they need to specify their types. They can update the schema. I mean, adding fields, remove fields inside a struct but our contract is you cannot change the type for any field i mean inside struct if you have abc a type of long you cannot change that to float that is uh you cannot change that but you can add and delete
0: so you get this data into parquet files parquet is useful for uh, the reasons that i mean i think we actually explored that in previous episodes we don't need to go too deeply into that but i think you know what's useful to know is the parquet format makes it really easy to like you basically have, I think it's, it's like a login access pattern for getting to a specific column of an if you're talking about nested databases, if you think of it, the, the nesting structure as a tree, you just have a login structure of, of getting to the specific column you're looking for. And then you can read the entire column instantly. So that's the usefulness of the parquet file format. Would you say it's accurate?
1: Yes, yes. Parquet is the, the good thing is, let's say you have a table of uh, 100 columns, but user query may just, he just need two columns. And instead of loading all the 100 columns, in parquet it's possible you just read the necessary data, the two columns. So we say huge this IO.
0: But it's additionally useful for the, for the nesting because you can still have a quick access to, to the entire column of a nested table. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, let's say a struct has 100 fields, but user may just touch uh, a few of them, one or two of them. And Parquet provides, uh, there is an API. We can just access, tell Parquet that just gave me these two uh, fields instead of loading the whole field. Yeah, that is since Parquet internally, for all the nasty things, they are still storing the, the fields value together. Excellent.
0: Okay, we've gotten to a good point. So we've stored all of our transactional data in parquet files that are now accessible from an OLAP fashion. Now, all we need to solve is all of the different types of applications that want to actually access that data. So you've got people that want to build machine learning applications. You've got people that want to make ad hoc data science queries. You've got real-time applications. Is there a common interface that we can build for people to access this online analytics data?
1: Good question. Yeah. Actually, we have one internally at Uber. We call it the Query Builder, which is kind of a big data portal. And inside the Query Builder, you can either query, let's say Presto or Hive, or you can try some other things. We have some other uh, MemSQL or the other enterprise database, if you like. And that is kind of a, a portal for users to access that. But. I mean, again, a company like Uber scales. Uh, I would say that more than 80% or even 90% of users are accessing uh, Presto or Hive through Query Builder. But still, there are so many other teams that they are either touching Presto or Hive directly, or they have sending HTTP requests or some other ways, JDBC, ODBC, to accessing the B data as well. So we are on our way to do the consolidation, but still not there yet.
0: I think here it's worth getting into Presto. Explain what Presto is.
1: Yeah, Presto is an interactive SQL engine for big data. Yeah, that's uh, in short. I mean, uh, the history is uh, Presto is created by Facebook in, uh, I think, uh, 2012, uh, in production in 2013. And then uh, now, I think, as far as I know, many companies are using Presto. Yeah, so many of them.
0: What is an example of a query that you would issue to Presto?
1: Uh, it's a typical SQL query. Actually, uh, uh, can I say any SQL query? Maybe not, but uh, a typical SQL query. You can run uh, Slack, you can run WireCloud, you can run BY. you can run window functions, rank, and you can run, there's so many other, for example, geospatial functions, which is added by Uber as well, and uh, a rich uh, functionality to the SQL standard.
0: So my understanding of Presto is not super strong. I think it's something like you you can issue a SQL query and then this Presto engine can interpret that query into whatever the domain-specific read pattern of an application is. So for example, if you don't know Hive, like Hive has its own domain-specific querying language, Presto would be able to translate the SQL query into like a user level SQL query into a Hive query? Is that an application of Presto?
1: I think you are talking about one other powerful feature of Presto called the Presto Connectors. Yeah. So actually Presto has an engine. I mean, uh, internally it has a standard SQL engine. And uh, that's the reason why it's fast. There's so many optimizations for that. And, but also Presto provides an interface called Presto Connectors which can let user run SQL on any storage. So not only SQL on HDFS. I mean, if your data is stored in, um, for example, Elasticsearch, user can also think each of the index inside Elasticsearch is one table. And then uh, the Presto Elasticsearch connector will translate the SQL into Elasticsearch, the search request. So user can run SQL on Elasticsearch. And uh, there's you can also possibly run... uh, SQL on Cassandra, SQL on Kafka, there's so many things, so many Presto connectors uh, available. Yeah, that is a, an, another cool feature of Presto. Yeah.
0: So I want to try to understand the usefulness of Presto. And what I think of it as, if, if I understand it correctly, is it's middleware that makes it easier for data engineering teams and application development teams to work together because an application development team may want to access a data set that is in the domain of the data engineering team. And the data engineering team only has it in Kafka or in Elasticsearch. And the application developer who's building some data science application just wants to speak SQL. They don't want to write an Elasticsearch query. And so Presto allows those two classes of teams, the application developers, and the data engineering teams to communicate or to, uh, well, it allows the application developers to write applications against any piece of data engineering infrastructure with just
1: SQL. Is that right? Yes, yes. This is one cool feature. I mean, for example, in our case, one team, they can run SQL directly on Elasticsearch, for example. The benefit of that is they do not need to copy the data and transform the data from Elasticsearch and dump into HDFS. Which will cost results and cause a big latency. I mean, the data, if you copy every day, it may cost at least uh, tens of minutes or even hours to copy the data. But Presto brings the gap that you can shoot SQL on anything. A SQL is understood by everyone. So everyone can shoot SQL, run analytics query on any storage. That is a power for this, uh, this cool feature, the Presto connector. Yeah. One other thing is uh, since we have this Hadoop data lake, so most of uh, of our information is in the uh, Hadoop data lake, but we still have a uh, data is scattered around the company in so many other places, Cassandra, Elasticsearch, MySQL. It's also provide the possibility that you can join one Hadoop data table with another Elasticsearch table. You can join them based, uh, oh. based on the user or something. I mean, this is fantastic. Oh. I mean, I don't know other engineers can do this. So yeah, we have uh, many use cases using this feature.
0: Well, that's incredible. So you can do cross database joins, or you could join a HDFS cluster with a Elasticsearch cluster.
1: Yes, yes, HDFS table with Elasticsearch table. Yeah, since in Presto, the uh, first you have the catalog. Catalog means uh, it's a name for the where your data source resides in. It could be either uh, HDFS or Cassandra or MySQL or Elasticsearch. And now you have the database name, now you have the table name. So it's uh, you can just, I mean, everything is just a table, just resides in a different catalog, another data source. So you can do join anything, group by, uh, anything SQL, you can do that for any storage.
0: How does a Presto MySQL query know how to turn into the queries for those specific domains? Like if I issue a query that's join, a SQL query, that's going to join a set of parquet files stored in HDFS with an Elasticsearch cluster. What's going on there? How does the Presto query engine figure out how to do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you're specifying the table name, now you need to say, if the data resides in MySQL, you'll need to refer uh, that as mysql.database.table1, and then join hive.database.table2. Then you can join these two tables and use the catalog. Since you have the MySQL as the first part, uh, it's now, oh, I'm looking for the, a MySQL table. Then uh, internally, actually, Presto has a MySQL connector, which is uh, actually simple, just use the JDBC to connect into MySQL, and that's streaming the data from MySQL into Presto Engine. And uh, the same, I mean, for Hive, the other side, Presto will scan HDFS files, and that's streaming the result back. Then Presto Engine will do the drawing inside the Presto member.
0: And- what is required to write one of these connectors to connect the Presto query engine to the Elasticsearch, for example, or to the Parquet files in HDFS, for example? I know you said JDBC, but how complicated is it to write one of those connectors?
1: I think the Presto connector interface is very clean. So it's uh, uh, if you read the Presto code, you will love it. The code is really good. But it, it is some work. For me, I developed the Elasticsearch connector. It cost me the whole, I mean, from development and then testing, stress testing, and then in production, cost me a few months, two or three months to develop the whole thing. So it will cost some time. But MySQL may be uh, easier since MySQL, the schema almost the same. So you just have a JDBC that is easier. But for something, it's a non-SQL key value thing, for example, the Cassandra one or Kafka one. It's a not traditional SQL style. Then uh, you need to do some transformation, play some magic there. So will cost some time, but not. I mean, it's a reasonable time. Yeah,
0: I think Presto is such a cool example of open source software because this is essentially a shared resource. But Presto itself, the code, is a shared resource between Facebook, Netflix, Uber, and three companies at least i'm sure there are other companies using presto are able to leverage each other's contributions to this project i mean i'm sure that's something that's you know you're aware of but i think that's a a pretty incredible development that these companies are able to share infrastructure basically
1: yeah yeah i think that's a very good thing i mean uh, i always feel thankful to the Facebook guys who created Presto, they are the really awesome engineers. I mean, they they are really they create a very cool thing and a very awesome thing. And then now it's, uh, I mean, when I was at Netflix, I started looking at that and then bring that into production and then uh, started contributing to it. And now uh, it's kind of for more and more companies. I mean, uh, besides Facebook, Uber, Netflix, also as far as I know, LinkedIn, Twitter. Interest, Airbnb, and almost all of them are using Presto. So it's a bigger and bigger community. And in uh, 2014, when the first Presto meetup happened, it just uh, maybe 20 to 50 people attending the air, But in recent years, it's more than 100 people. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So many pe- so many companies and so many engineers are jumping into the this community. So very nice.
0: So... We did do a show on Presto in the past, and that show covers some of the query lifecycle of Presto. But I'm sure a lot has changed since then, I'm sure because we did that show like two and a half years ago or so. But what are the developments in Presto? Because it sounds like this is a well-defined project, right? You want to be able to issue SQL and have that SQL query execute against disparate data sources, potentially joining them together. It's a well-defined problem set, but it's really hard to optimize. So what are the areas that are under a lot of research and development within the Presto community?
1: Yeah, I think the Presto is, a, we can say that it's a typical, just a typical SQL engine, but it's for big data and so many things. That, the number one thing, I mean, so many companies are loving Presto is because of Presto performance. It's so fast. If you have a user just using Hive uh, previously, if they... Shoot a Presto query, they will love it. It's much faster. That, that is number one reason why so many companies are using that. And internally, it's a number of optimizations Presto D Number one is, uh, is uh, in-memory columnar processing. I mean, uh, after reading the data from Pakea or RC, uh, internally, Presto is storing the values in-memory. The Andrea also processing the values columnarly, not as a row by row. So if you are doing row by row, you are wasting CPU time or the memory a memory copy to process some unnecessary data. But Presto internally it has a, the internal data block inside Presto engine is also commonly and also that is encoded. Uh, we have dictionary coding and so many encodings for that. That also make it fast. One other thing is that Presto also do the. It's written in Java, but Presto also doing the bytecode generation. I think that is a very cool feature. Make it a. Uh, I would say it's uh, almost the uh, fastest fast engine. Is, uh, it rewrite all the SQL operators into uh, the Java bytecode, including the rewrite uh, for loop into uh, I re-write the branches and rewrite the constant zone. And uh, even for the, I mean, uh, so many Java internal things to using ASM to rewrite that. That is also one uh, very cool optimization, but few other engines can do. The other things are, I mean, are common in other engines as well, since Presto is doing a pool based uh, model, is that the push based. So the push based model, like if you are doing something, uh, you see like some column, limit five. In Hive, the MapReduce push based model, uh, the bottom layer have to scan all the files and then push the result to the upper layer operators. But in Presto, it's a pool based. So the top layers, I just ask for the five results if it's a limit five. And as long as my bottom layer gave me five results, my query is done. So that is one other model how cool uh, Presto is uh, much faster. Yeah, and uh, let me see. Also, the, one other feature for Presto is, uh, is besides reading from HDFS and network touch disk, all the processing are in memory. So that is in nature faster than disk space engines. So Uber built a
0: Parquet reader to read Parquet files in a custom fashion, as an example for how Presto works, explain where this Parquet reader fits into the infrastructure, why you built it, and how you got a boost in query speed from that reader.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, since we Uber decided to use Parquet for our almost all of our raw data, so we try to play Presto and Parquet together. But due to the Uber-specific use case, I mean, our data is highly nested. And our query, mostly uh, we have a predicate. Uh, so many of these things, and uh, initially, Presto and Parquet is not fast enough. So we try to optimize that. Uh, the area we are optimizing is number one, is so, uh, the Parquet developed originally for the MapReduce use cases. So Parquet library is uh, supporting the next key, next value, which is row based So it's uh, quite interesting. Originally in high, well, Presto, how the data is reading from Parquet. It's like the Parquet is storing the data in columnarly, but the parquet API provides the data in row, row by row. And then Presto have to convert that row into columns again so that Presto columnar engine can process that. So there's a, a two-times memory copy, which is unnecessary. So we are rewriting a new, we call it a new packet reader, which we directly reading from the packet all the values in columns. Then we directly transform that into a... Uh, press internal uh, columnar blocks. So this saves all this unnecessary memory copy. One other thing we are optimizing is also the, since Parquet also keeping the stats, the min, max, count, sum all these uh, stats for the file, and we can do practically pushdown. So if you are looking for, let's say, wire uh, column A greater than 10, and we first read the stats, seeing the max value of this column A just, uh, let's say, 5. Then we can skip reading the whole thing since there's no possibility that you can find any value greater than 10 since the max is just fine. So we do a, we are doing predicate pushdown and further than that we are doing dictionary pushdown and packet internally has one page storing all the dictionary values. So uh, if we just read the min max and we find oh we have to scan this file then we read the dictionary again to see whether if you are looking for let's say the column A equal to be eight. We see, oh, the max value is ten, but all the possible values are two, three, five, nine. So no eight there. Then we still skip reading the decimal, the packet as well. One other thing we did is for the nested in nature. Since initially, I mean, the Presto engine doesn't uh, design to process the nested thing in nature. So we are doing many optimizations, including the nested column. We need to push down the projection. We need to push down also the nested predicates. We try to push down that as well. So that's uh, so many things together, and finally, we have uh, more than 5x performance improvement using this new Parquet reader for Presto.
0: Okay, if we return to this question of schema, you've got the schemaless core uh, transactional data. You've got data a schema that is maintained over your HDFS infrastructure via that Hive metastore. You've also got Presto store, which maintains the schema of the Presto databases, or the Presto data sources, does the Metastore of Presto update automatically? Like, how reliable is that Presto Metastore?
1: Actually, Presto is sharing the same Metastore as Hive. So it's uh, one thing, just, uh, the, actually just the Hive Metastore. Presto using that to, so there's uh, just one source of metadata that is Hive Metastore. So Presto is using that as a metadata for that.
0: And does Presto need to have an awareness of the metadata in the other data sources that it might access?
1: Oh, good question. Very good question. So the Presto connector interface has a metadata interface, which is where we implement the metadata there. Yeah, for example, the Presto Hive connector, the Hadoop connector, we just use Hive Metastore, gave us everything. But for example, Elasticsearch, uh, actually we are sending an Elasticsearch mapping request. For the index, then we get all the fields. Then we massage that a little bit, then return to the user. So that is a schema. So it's a kind of implementing that and based on a different uh, story solutions.
0: So the, the connector, in writing the connector, you are
1: writing what needs yeah. to be... You need to do that, implementing all, all okay. of that.
0: So the, Metastor, the Presto Metastore will get consistently updated with all of the things that it has a connector to.
1: Yes. Yes. So in Hive, Hadoop connector, you are relying on the Hive metastore. In Elasticsearch, you rely on the uh, mapping request. In MySQL, MySQL also have. uh, You can run describe table. You get everything there. So it's a connector based. That's awesome.
0: Okay. Nearing the end of our time. This has been great. You've seen data infrastructure at Netflix, Facebook,
1: and Uber.
0: How do they compare? How do these companies compare?
1: Okay. Yeah, as far as... uh, I'm not employed by Netflix uh, (laughs) and Facebook, (laughs) but I think Facebook's data info is uh, very awesome. I mean, uh, when I was there, the engineering culture is very awesome, and uh, all the engineers there are really hardworking, so it's uh, very talented. So uh, Facebook, even uh, several years ago, their data info has so many cool features. I mean, even now, I think very few companies in the Silicon Valley can have the the same features as Facebook. I mean, based on scalability and also the functionality, I mean, Facebook, the data info, both HDFS, Presto, Hive, and now they are running Spark. So everything is awesome. I think that's a really awesome team and awesome company. Yeah, Netflix is a very special case, I think. Netflix is everything on AWS. So it's uh, very interesting, Is uh, you can imagine uh, a company of that size, that scale, they just start everything on i3, um, but they have their own uh, kind of, uh, either they buy some license from AWS, or they build something their own, like Presto, to try to uh, query it from uh, i3. I mean, uh, Netflix is, a, I think it's a very special use case, unlike all the other companies. They believe in cloud, truly <laughs> believe in that. And they... And they, they like paying money to buy some storage about <laughs> cloud, but they are building their own customized thing and they make it working perfect. I think that's a very interesting story there. For Uber, I think we are still growing. Yeah, I mean, the Uber, we have the potential to grow uh, even bigger. Now we are growing very fast. And then for our the big data stack is uh, started just uh, two or less than three years ago. I mean, our development uh, speed is really fast. We achieve even more things than the other company, I think. But we have so many interesting problems. And uh, as long as the scale is keep improving, keep I- increasing, I mean, <laughs> yeah, our software uh, improving. So we have so many things to, to learn from open source also the, uh, the other companies as well.
0: Xiao, thank you so much for coming on Software
1: Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Jeffrey. So nice chatting with you. Wow.